My name's Joseph, and the reason I support the Green Majority is because, admittedly, I'm not as in the know as I should be on these topics. And this is a great source for the real, non-mainstream media perspective, which is important to have in this country. And you too can support the Green Majority and help spread non-mainstream media and real talk about the environment and Canadian politics by becoming a member. You can do that for as little as a dollar a month, and you can sign up at greenmajority.ca, click on the How You Can Help button, or you can go to Patreon, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash greenmajority. Listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country and now into the United States as well. You could also be listening on rabble.ca, our very appreciated local partners here in Toronto, or you could be listening on the podcast as well off our site, of course, of which if you were doing so, you can look forward to a brief bonus show at the end of the show. We have a really exciting uh, topic, I think, for the bonus show as well today, but I will tease you about that later. I am, of course, your host, Darren Kaster. I'm sitting in studio with uh, pretty much everybody this week. We've had a few people away. I have a full studio today. Um, so Stefan Hostetter's back. He's going to be talking a little bit about his trip in just a minute, which was uh, out to a, a conference, an environment conference over the last week. Uh, as well, we're going to relate that to a bunch of news. We'll also be talking about Trudeau's visit to the U.S. Uh, we'll be talking about the Chippewa of the Thames Line 9 challenge and relating that to a number of Indigenous struggles, both in Canada and across the world, with regards to the environment, and uh, I bet you know how that's going to go, but we'll give you the details in a few minutes as well. And then I'm also very much looking forward to our guest this week. We have a guest, and uh, and uh, if you've been listening regularly, you'll know that we've inverted our order, and we're actually doing our interviews last now. So at the very end of the show, uh, we will be talking to Matthew Klippenstein, who is a chemical engineer and plug-in electric vehicle enthusiast. And the one thing I thought that was funny about that is that, you know, I say I'm an enthusiast about a lot of things. But when somebody who's uh, a chemical engineer says they're an enthusiast about something, you know that they they have a lot more detail than than I would when I say I know I'm an enthusiast about something. So Matthew is uh, he wouldn't put it this way. I've spoken to him and I've looked at some of his work. I would I would caution to I, I would cautiously call him possibly an expert on the subject. So we're looking very much forward to speaking to Matthew at the end of the program about the future and real current reality of uh, electric plug in vehicles here in Canada uh, as well later in the program. But without further ado. Fresh off, I'm not going to call it vacation, um, but Stefan, back from a conference, Globe Conference, uh, yeah. do you want to start telling us a little bit about your experience? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so this was an interesting time for me um, because I went, so the Globe, just so everyone knows, uh, the Globe uh, 2016 it happens every two years. Uh, it's a conference, uh, well, about corporate sustainability, basically, is, the, is, their, main, is their main mandate. Uh, and I went with, well, obviously, biases. Uh, and and I went intentionally to sort of see to sort of understand where they where they sat sort of with with reality. You know, uh, my, my main the main question I went in I sort of was explaining this throughout the entire week I was there uh, was this question of whether or not 
whether or not corporate sustainability was like a bunch of people prettying up a cage and then wondering why they're still in it, you know, uh, or, or whether and which is, sounds harsh. Uh, and but like it's but that was really my, that was really my question. That was my honest question going in. And I, and I wanted to actually challenge that and sort of see what people were there doing. Um, and the first thing I need to say is that the first thing I came out coming out of this conference is that the people in corporate sustainability really do care. There are there are real people who really really are trying to change the world, and they have the capacity to do, to make massive massive changes. You know, they're in the positions of power that actually are able to do so much so much work. Uh, you know, uh, like it or not, the the corporate sustainability officer for a large oil and gas company can do one one relatively small thing within their job, which reduces more carbon than than you know I could possibly hope to in my lifetime, theoretically. No, uh, and and there, so there is this so there's this tension. What I went into this conference with a tension between uh, capacity and sort of the final solution, uh, which is the wrong way to say that. Uh, but like the the actual solution to climate change, basically. perhaps ultimate ultimate solution. There we go. Uh, to like to, to to actually breaking through this sort of difficulty we have. Uh, Darren is now laughing at me, <laughs> um, which is fair. Uh, so. Um, so that was the tension I sort of came in trying to, to understand. Uh, to get a, to, to use Globe's own words uh, to how it builds itself is that it calls itself North America's largest and longest running conference and exposition series dedicated to business innovation for the planet, uh, it, which is a bunch of words to try to say corporate sustainability without ever saying the words corporate or sustainability. Uh, which you know, I guess there it's a it, I guess it's in the prerogative to avoid those words, um, and and so I and so. I, I sort of went through this, through this, asking this question, asking this question, asking this question, um, and uh, there's, and I came up with sort of four different points in this event uh, that really left me with sort of a distinction, uh, distinct feeling about the whole, uh, whole experience, and then also uh, how it tied back to one sort of shocking event that happened in the middle of it, in sort of the weird dichotomy I saw between what where I was and and, the, and this world event. Uh, and so the first thing is that it's it's important to note that. Trudeau opened this conference. You know, the, the Prime Minister of Canada opened a sustainability conference and then and wasn't booed off stage, uh, which is something you couldn't say for the past 10 years. Uh, and that alone, I think, deserves something. In, in his speech, he, he said he, he both said he pledged $75 million to, uh, to, to, to green tech and then also said that pipelines were going to pay for, for our tra- energy transition, um, which, again, I think sort of which is so I, I titled this part Trudeau and the Elephants, uh, because if there was one thing about this conference that I felt like it was that there was there were these elephants in the room that no one was allowed to talk about throughout the entire four days I was there. Um, and, and the first one was this idea that somehow they managed to talk about energy transition about 75, 60, 75 80 times, and never once did it really, did they ever sort of imply that that also might mean that coal or that coal and natural gas and oil were on the way out? It was somehow that we'd have an energy transition, yet oil would still be fine? I think if if I might jump in just for a second, yeah. uh, Trudeau's quote: "The choice between pipelines and wind turbines is a false one." Right, exactly. Because build, baby, build. <laughs> um, exactly. Like, and and see, and, and that sort of underlines a sort of this weird, weird false dichotomy that he that, 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 weird, that this weird uh, double speak, I guess, that sort of occurred the entire time. Yeah, Amy. Stefan, I just wanted to ask sort of what you heard about this initiative called Sustainable Prosperity. This is something that was highlighted by various uh, business people who are, who've kind of been spokespeople for 
um, this kind of thinking, including Arlene Dickinson, who most people know from Dragon's Den. Was there any talk about sustainable prosperity? From what I heard, it was very much speaking to what you've just addressed, which is we've got to get our products to market, but we support carbon pricing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So the carbon pricing is actually – that carbon pricing rate was big. It was fascinating. Everyone wanted to price on carbon. Uh, and, and, and every industry wanted price on carbon. And, and there was actually even some decent talk about, about not only having price on carbon, but actual useful price on carbon, uh, which is sort of pushing the economies forward. But to the extent in which, um, to really, like, the, it was almost, it, I think present carbon is someone that was used as a magic bullet uh, to then allow for the rest of, the rest of, of unsustainable practices to carry forward. You know, it was like, as long as you have price on carbon and we're saying that, then the rest of it's okay. Like, so this, uh, the head of Suncor very sat down uh, to directly say we need a price on carbon. Uh, he also admitted that he thinks that fossil fuels are a contributor to climate change. Whoa. So, whoa. <laughs> news. Yeah, no, exactly. We have, uh, that's, I find it so funny about that, about that, him sitting down doing that, is that it really is like this, hey, guess what, people? I'm saying things that everyone said 30 years ago, but for me, it's news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Darren. And coming up after the break, gravity exists. <laughs> well, it's gravity for someone who you know who invents moon shoes. <laughs> um, but so so that was the first. Thing. So this is interesting conversation about like the one time this actually got broken through. Actually, twice it got broken through. The first time was uh, Amory Levins uh, got had a talk. He has an amazing book out right now talking about the energy transition, and he has one quote, um, which was basically that uh, oil companies have more to concern should be worried more about market competition than they should uh, ca- climate regulation. Uh, and he in about half an hour he went through this perfect exposition of why oil prices will probably never go up and why it's on its way. And it was it was it was beautiful. Uh, if it is possible to find that online, I'm not 100 sure. I haven't checked out that yet. Um, please do so. Uh, so, to, but to move on, there this was this was perhaps the most this this one moment I think was the one that stands out, and I think it is the is perhaps the best way that uh, that ties into the sort of the carrying on thing. There's, I have a whole bunch of thoughts. I'm going to write it up and I'll put it put it somewhere else, uh, and we'll we'll share it. But this one I think t- ties in perfectly to where I want to go, uh, which is. I went to a session called Brand and Sustainability in the Age of Transparency, um, which was already a fascinating idea. Yeah, can I, I – sorry to jump in. Yeah. Are, I, I'm assuming they mean this upcoming age of transparency as opposed to something that we're in. Uh, well, they were referring really specifically to sort of the power of the internet to find you out, basically. No, it wasn't that – Despite all attempts to the contrary. Well, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and actually, this, 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 to, to set the tone of how this talk went, it opened up uh, with – it opened up with someone – they didn't say this exactly, but they said this – it was what they meant while not actually saying it, was that marketing is, now, is harder now than it was in the 70s because if if you lie, people will find out. Was right. basically what he said without actually saying that, that those words. Um, so yeah, so basically the idea was it's it's like you. His point was that people will always find out if you're if you're trying to if you're if you're ruining the planet, and so you should just you have to be honest about what you're doing because people will find out and they will ruin you. Yeah, I think I think one day, Stefan, um, you know, you remember from the Muppets? Yes. You know, those two the two old guys they would sit in the rafters. <laughs> yeah. I think one day if you know if we you know somehow imagine end up with a lot more resources than we currently have, aka any, um, <laughs> that we should just go and like annotate conferences and we'll do. Like a live stream and just like <laughs> constantly make sarcastic comments. I don't think it would help anyone learn anything, but right. it, I would, it would amuse myself. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so this is so so around this time, uh, th- I want to make I want to sort of show the 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 dichotomy of these two things that happened around the same time, um, and 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 sort of shows where I think sustainability needs to understand that that you know price on carbon to go back to your point, I mean that price on carbon is not enough. 
uh, which was that here we were at a sustainability conference, and during this brand sustainability and age of transparency, there was a three, there was a four person panel, um, all all you know middle aged white men, uh, and one of them happened to be a representative for Nestle Water North. <laughs> um, and 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 he so he was just up there for an hour and a half talking literally about brand and sustainability in the age of transparency, and not a single question got to him about how this, the completely unsustainable practices and the horrendous record that Nestle has with water, and so it, it was just such an impressive display of what invisible power looks like. Yeah, if, if you, you ever would... wanted to show what invisible power looks like, put a man on stage to talk about Nestle Water North and branding for an hour and a half and never ask him a question. Yeah, sorry, sorry to kind of yeah, make yeah. it. I just, just for the sake of the audience, in case there's anybody that doesn't, isn't aware of this, I know I've said it a lot, but not everybody listens every week, you know, even mm. though you should, <laughs> um, is that, you know, these, this is the company that, you know, purchases water from municipal sources and then bottles it and charges you a thousand percent price uptick. And the CEO of which has said, and I never get tired of saying this, you do not have a human right to water. Which, lest I remind you, water is a physical requirement for life. There is no way to survive. Life cannot exist without water, which means that the official position of the CEO of Nestle is that no one on earth has a right to life. That that's not a conjecture. I'm not stretching his point. He literally, his opinion is that nobody has a right to life. If you don't have money, you do not have a right to live. Yes. Uh, to, to be to to his obvious defense of this is that he thinks that if you put a price on all water, then you'll actually then everyone will 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 not use it so much. Uh, but that's <laughs> doesn't fly um, with me. And 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 so yeah. So like so Nestle has this terrible terrible record. But the point is that during the same time that this was happening over here, and we're in this conference where invisible power was perhaps so so obvious in the things that you weren't allowed to talk to, things you couldn't talk about. To the extent that my day three was the first time I heard anyone say the word carbon budget, and also in that same talk was the only time I heard anyone say uh, say that activists created the space to bring oil and gas and government to the to the table. Uh, and that was both from Spore Berman, who was the arguably the only activist in the entire thing except for the indigenous peoples who who were who had were given two panels but not actually included in the rest of the actual conference um uh but a theme you might say a theme might show say. yeah uh so but but so during i think it was the same day uh during this entire conference of the of invisible power uh i got a i was also i was following twitter and a, a, a tweet came up about uh berta Cacheres, uh who's who was murdered is an environmental activist in honduras who was murdered and when we say murdered he it was more of an assassination uh, you know, two people broke into her house and shot her. You know, this wasn't like a this wasn't a murder over anything else beyond her activism. And she had received death threats. And like, there's a whole outcry about how Honduras failed to actually protect her. Um, and and what and, and I was sitting here in this sort of weird space where like here we're talking about carbon pricing is going to solve all the problems, yet ignoring the massive power that we are seeing of Blockadia and of these indigenous people actually rising up to to fight the system in itself, and yet we're having this massive conference and not a single word on any of this can be mentioned, and and, and the, the the stark contrast between uh, between what what was what was happening with. Um, with the conference and then what was happening in Honduras or in all across the world where these different fights are happening in every, it, like all really like the, the, the Balkadia exists almost everywhere now. And just a quick aside, Balkadia is a sort of, you know, in this moment where civil people are coming up and, and 
civilis- using civil disobedience to stop different parts of uh, different you know different pipeline projects or other infrastructure projects um, that are you know harmful for the environment. Uh, and so I was just. It, it, it so so effectively drove home for me this dichotomy and this is this separation that exists between what we w- between what we see in corporate sustainability and what we actually need to get to with environmental justice first lens. Uh, that like I don't have an exact full answer to how we sort of bring these two together. Um, and I think the real question that I have and the question I will leave with our listeners uh, is really how you can take this one side of the power this power dynamic which is so obvious and and and, and yet so so it does such a good job sort of hiding itself while hiding itself in plain sight to some extent but has the capacity and 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 honestly the will to some extent to actually really do a lot of good with the sort of complete other lens of environmental justice that has to be understood but exists within the same power system you know you it's, you can't say that the people who run you know the people who run shell in in, in and are doing great energy projects in the in in, in, in Alberta and other stuff like that, and are, who are actually building wind turbines in Alberta, uh, are the same people who are in Nigeria uh, completely disregarding the laws uh, and the MA. Yes, I think this is such an important thing to highlight. And I just want to make a comment on that particular case that you've raised. One thing that it really makes clear also is the role of state actors in this dichotomy. So, for example, the Obama regime has wanted to be known for their legacy on climate and the environment. They also have supported this regime um, that in in Guatemala that actually has really attacked um, indigenous rights by furthering these kinds of dam projects. Um, they've they've supported their military. They've supported their police. They were, they've supported a regime that ousted a democratically elected government that came to power by coup. So you're seeing again right hand left hand problems, if I can put it that way, which are then coming to a head um, when you know, an activist loses her life. Of course, this is an alleged assassination. We don't know that for sure. But her struggle really highlights um, the struggles of Indigenous people, which are happening every day around the world. And once we come back from the break, I also want to talk about the process around the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, where our Indigenous peoples have made representations. And there were some findings about that this week. I just want to really quickly say that there's an event um, in actually just under an hour, Justice for Berta Kacharis, outside our MP and Minister for um, Trade, uh, Christia Freeland's office, um, to bring attention to Canadian investment and complicity in um, supporting these these governments that MA is mentioning and, and Canadian mining as well. All right. So I think we should probably uh, take our break there. We'll take our our first music break. We'll be back with more news in a few uh, minutes. And then as well, as I said, we're going to be talking about electric vehicles in Canada at the end of the program today. So you're listening to The Green Majority. Stay tuned to that dial. Please enjoy this music break, however, give you a chance to digest all that good information. And uh, we're going to find out from Alex today. Alex is going to tell us what we're going to be listening to on this music break. Thanks, Darren. Um, So for the first music break today, we're going to check out a new song by Shotgun Jimmy. He's a great maritime uh, artist, and he's released about seven albums uh, in the past ten years. Uh, And he's just got a new one coming out. Uh, And this is the title track, I believe, from it called Field of Trampolines. So here it is. And we're we're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're going to get into a little bit more 
news in just one second. But uh, before we actually uh, throw to MA, we have, as we said, if you're listening on the uh, podcast version that's found on our uh, site, uh, we have a brief bonus show, which is hosted uh, by Sabina. And Sabina is just going to really quickly tease what this bonus show is going to be later in the program. So Sabina, go ahead. Hi, thank you, Darren. So today on the podcast, we'll be discussing a new study at UBC, which observed that welfare recipients are seen as immoral for buying ethical products, whereas wealthier people are seen as virtuous. And we'll try to have a discussion on that. All right. Thank you very much, Spina. Looking forward to that in the um, bonus show. But without further ado, I'm going to hand it back to uh, one of my co-hosts, M.A. Ma, who's going to lead us through the news in the second section. Take, Take it away. Thanks, Darren. So I just want to pick up on the theme of the right to water. Can't believe that is actually debatable, but apparently it is, especially if you're referring to uh, uh, some of the uh, corporate folks at Nestle, apparently. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just want to highlight something else that's been happening on a similar timeline to some of these uh, climate, international and Canadian climate discussions. Canada was under its 10-year review under the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. The the committee or panel that looks at how countries are doing against their commitments provided some conclusions on this. And during this process, some of our First Nations made representations to the panel. And one of the huge findings that, that has been highlighted, and it's in one of the articles that is posted on the website today, is that... Many indigenous communities, over a hundred, I believe, in Canada, do not have potable water. In this day and age, can you imagine that this is a gross human rights violation? So when we look at indigenous struggles and we look at the relationship to water uh, as a fundamental human right, the relationship to natural resources and the ongoing struggles. This is just a really important thing uh, that we wanted to acknowledge on the show, um, especially today's show where we're highlighting the ongoing day-to-day struggle of Indigenous peoples. Yeah, and so I just wanted to, this is, I was going to sneak it into the last section, but we ran out of time, and I, I really don't want to spend too much uh, time. I mean, I would love to, don't get me wrong, but just, <laughs> just as far as today's program, I'm, I'm not going to take a bunch of time to talk about this, but there's one of the news stories that came up today was that uh, uh, as of, I believe, yesterday, uh, at least within the last 48 hours, uh, an Amazonian uh, tribe uh, kidnapped some Petro Peru workers following a string of oil spills. And now you can read a lot about the story. Please do. I'll put the link on the website. That's all I'll say about it for now, just because we have a lot of other stuff we also want to talk about. The point I just wanted, the reason I wanted to mention that and the point that I wanted to make was, you know, we can't divorce ourselves from this stuff. These, the oil that's being coming there is being used not for, this isn't an internal Peruvian problem. This is oil being used for the global market and these are international multinational corporations, the same ones that we talk about that want to be seen as uh, fuzzy and friendly uh, here in North America and in, you know, in Europe and and all the sort of rich white nations. Uh, They get to do this and we can't divorce ourselves from that. Not only can we not pretend like we have a global climate budget, we also have to remember that this is globalization. This is things. So when something happens and there's a bunch of oil spills and, you know, activists are murdered and there's tons and tons of oil spills where oil is being done and we go, well, that's not in Canada. We're, we're the good country. Those, and we get to wag our fingers at Peru. Hey, those are multinational. Sometimes they call themselves Canadian. Sometimes they call themselves Americans, but multinational corporations that are, are producing products for us to consume. And those people are being murdered and and uh, these things spills are being happened and this land is being destroyed for us to be able to consume that product and just because the ceo of exxon didn't pull the trigger and just because someone who direct, maybe doesn't even directly work for one of these companies directly pull the trigger doesn't mean that this is not part of this entirely same thing so we can't pretend like this is some other thing that's happening somewhere else that we have no connection to it's just not it's interesting because um 
I think what we are doing right now is pretending, you know, that that Sarnia and the industry there is somewhere else and is not in Canada. Mm-hmm. I just returned from Sarnia for the first time I visited. Um, was obviously incredibly struck by the industry there um, and the fact that Amjanong First Nation sits like right in the center of it all. And so, you know, we've been talking a lot about water. Emma had just mentioned. Um, you know, we met two women in Sarnia who have really literally been putting their their bodies on the line for the health of that community. And Sarnia refines, I think it's 40% of all petroleum products in Canada. Like it all flows down to Sarnia. So, and, and there's, you know, cancer medications being manufactured and produced using some of the like chemical refineries there. Like it's, it's really supplying our lifestyle and it's, it's in Canada. It's like right across from, from Detroit in Canada. So I had just returned from there. Um, and also wanted to mention the Enbridge line nine Chippewa of the Thames Supreme court, uh, case. So the, um, the appeal was approved basically to go to the Supreme Court. And we talked about water. So Enbridge Line 9 crosses um, the Thames River in London, as well as 35 other rivers that flow into Lake Ontario. Um, so although the, as we had David Donald Gray on a couple of weeks ago, talking about how the the flow of Line 9 has been reversed, like it was approved by the National Energy Board, um, the Chippewas of the Thames are have a, have a, a lawsuit basically going um, in against that. So we see again that First Nations resistance is really... Yeah, yeah, that's such a, it's such a critical uh, lawsuit to point out, Brenna, um, because they had put this lawsuit forward. It was actually rejected by the federal court, and the ruling you're talking about came from the Supreme Court of Canada, which enables them to actually appeal the federal court ruling. And they're doing this on the basis that, you know, the duty to consult um, was not upheld. And the court has actually agreed with them. So the, the Chippewas of the Thames have, have pointed out that there's a long struggle ahead. This ruling just allows them to go forward with their appeal. It's not a final decision in itself. Mm-hmm. So I think this is something that everyone should be paying attention to. And those of you who do agree with and support this cause should really be lending your support to the Chippewas of the Thames. The other thing I wanted to um, highlight, because we promised to talk about it, and I almost feel a little bit strange doing so, given the, you know, the severity of the issues we've been talking about with regards to Indigenous peoples, but to completely go on off on a different track, um, is that there, there was a huge uh, North American love-in <laughs> this week between President Obama and Prime Minister Trudeau on Trudeau's first state, state visit to the U.S. That was the first... Uh, that was the first uh, visit of a Canadian prime minister, I believe, in about 20 years. Why we're mentioning it on the show is that climate change did figure quite prominently in their discussions, and they actually came out with some fairly concrete commitments. So I'm just going to run through those very quickly for you, highlight a few of them. So one thing that the leaders did agree to do was reduce methane emissions from the oil and gas industry by 40 to 45 percent below 2012 levels by 2025 and also to pursue these commitments through the G20. They also said that they would look at the reduction of emissions from hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, um, as well as looking at emissions reductions for on-road heavy-duty vehicles 
and also look at the aviation industry, emissions from the aviation industry. Can I just point out that I think they got more work done than the prime minister and the premiers when they (laughs) met in Vancouver? I mean, this is, you know, it's a different context. And one could say, well, Obama's an outgoing president and he wants to to leave a legacy. But can I just point out that these guys actually released a target? And that is a lot better than what we've seen done between the provinces and the federal government so far. They made a hard commitment with a, a real reduction indicator in there. My goodness. And, you know, the, the commentary uh, on the, on this piece was that, well, you know, these things don't just get announced when these guys meet, shake hands and have an, a fancy state dinner. They're the work of a lot of negotiations that go in beforehand so that they can actually produce something substantial. Well, couldn't we apply that principle to the cur- the process that the premiers and the, the prime minister just undertook now? Why didn't they bring these kinds of things to the table, knowing that we have to tackle these things and come out with something a little more concrete. Does anyone want to get in on that action? Darren, you look well, like you're wanting to jump in. I just, well, I wanted to point out that one of the most shared, one of the most popular and one of the highest search result uh, articles that comes up when you do that, uh, not the highest, but um, up there enough to be noticeable, is actually the fact that uh, and I believe it was American, I could be wrong, it might have been Canadian, but I'm pretty sure it was American uh, news outlet, decided to report on the fact that uh, uh, everyone was wearing clothes designed by a Canadian designer. The title of the article was actually, Did You Know Canada Has Designers? So it's good to know that the mainstream media is really all on top of this. Um, I'm going to jump in and and to some extent defend the first minister's meeting. Uh, mostly because I, when I, a couple years ago, uh, when I, I worked for uh, a professor, a professor here at the University of Toronto and really looked into what killed Kyoto. Uh, and really looked into sort of all the first ministers' meetings that happened um, to then. And arguably, I believe I'm, I, I could be I could be encouraged about this, but this is one of the first one of the first first ministers' meetings since it, the, all the talks around Kyoto died fifty almost fifteen years ago now. Um, and I, I believe it was the first one in ten years. So I think it was probably 2006, right before Harper, right around when Harper came in. Um, and and while I share MA's uh, sort of disdain for the lack of amount of work they've done, I also just from studying that, I know that what killed Kyoto to some extent was this demand to go faster, and was this demand to sort of get things done quick. Like to, to, to there was a was a very strong push by the liberal government because they were knew they were they were probably losing power to actually sort of ratify Kyoto out out of it and and it. it to talk about legacy as a legacy thing for Kretchen. And that is what pushed all of the provinces out of the conversation. Yeah, um, yeah and, that's and, a fair comment. And so, like, I, uh, so yeah, so not to, not to say, of course, that that um, that's the, the, I guess it underlies the tension we still see, right, is that we need speed now, but also to get a lasting deal, you sort of have to give them some time. Yeah, so it's not, for me, my criticism is not about working things out. So mm. we, we do function in a federation. And so it's quite true that in terms of what actually gets done concretely, that does need to be an agreement between the provinces and the federal government. My my criticism of the whole process is the starting point. They need to start with a science-based platform. Mm. Even if they haven't agreed on how the details are going to be worked out, even if they're still debating that they may want to use different policy mechanisms to get there, they need to start with the basic scientific floor and say, okay, this is where we need to arrive at. Let us at least at a minimum agree with that. And then let's work backwards on customized plans for the provinces and areas where we're going to work across the board um, to achieve that. They're, they're not taking that approach at all. For sure. And I'm going to tee something up for Darren because Darren half mentioned this, uh, which is the, the 
uh, w- w- the difficulty there, of course, is if you want a a, a, a pan Canada approach, you have to get the. You're always limited by the. Li- there's always a limiting factor, right? There's always the one premier who who has the lowest lowest bar that uh, that that sort of cro- that can put a wrench in the plans. And if they say no, then you don't have then you don't have a Canadian plan. Uh, and the 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 words coming out of uh, coming out of Brad Wall's mouth right now, uh, really, as what's fascinating is like you know we finally have an Albertan government that's going to work on something, and then suddenly the Saskatchewan shows up and is like, but we're going to be jerks now. It's our turn. All right. We're getting close to the end of the second section. I just wanted to sneak a few final things in. First of all, I keep forgetting we do actually have uh, uh, a phone number. So if, you, if you're listening to the show and you vehemently agree or disagree with something, uh, we are very happy to play criticism or, or a range of views on the program. So you can actually have your say. We just can't do a call-in. So what we have is actually a message line. Uh, so it's listed on the Contact Us page on the website. But you can call one triple, uh, sorry, one eight seven 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 three six. 3921. If you didn't catch that, that's fine. Go to greenmajority.ca slash contact us. You can call, leave us a brief message, and we'll be happy to play it on air, and then we can discuss it. It can be uh, praise. It can be criticism. I would actually prefer criticism, frankly, because uh, that's more interesting to me. Um, but there's that as well. A couple other things really quickly as well is that we do also have a vote for the news thing every week. And uh, well, uh, the, the one thing that I actually most like to talk about, we got a few suggestions. And the one I was actually the most interesting in came in at the last minute, so I don't have time to prepare for it. Uh, but there was two. One of them said that, you know, well, we because uh, we mentioned Leo, someone gave us the article uh, uh, from Mercy Frantical saying, now that Leo won the Oscars, it's time he watched his documentary. So fair point. We don't have time to talk about it, but I'm going to put the link on the website. So <laughs> there's to acknowledge that. The other thing was a, uh, a business financial post uh, article saying Canada may ar- already be uh, carbon neutral. So why are we keeping it a secret? Uh, and it's it's a giant pile of nonsense. Again, I don't have time to deconstruct it, but I'll give you one thing about how you can if you're listening to the podcast. Follow along, pause it in a second, and then you can do this yourself. <laughs> I'm going to link to the article. The, the Financial Post doesn't – it lists where it gets the information from, uh, but doesn't link to it. So I found the, the reference point, and the person saying is that Canada's carbon sinks are this, and therefore this and that, and makes all these comments about carbon. Here's the fastest way – there's a whole bunch of stuff that's wrong with this article, but here's the fastest thing you can do. If you actually go to the thing that the article is referencing as the entire data point for its entire argument, and you do con- uh, Control-F or Command-F if you're on a Mac, mm-hmm. now type in the word Canada – zero hits <laughs> there is no information in the entire research paper that specifically talks about canada meaning that you cannot make any conclusions about canada <laughs> so at the very best uh and I, I i'm sorry i've lost the note in front of me here if i can find it really quickly i'll tell you it's not in front of me this is a, a former minister this is not some random person who's done a comment piece this is a former elected official from canada so i'm if i if i can i'm gonna do my best to actually come back to it because i really liked how full of nonsense this was and how juvenile it was especially from somebody with some accreditation to their name uh but that's the best we could do just because i got it in here at the last minute uh and very quickly i think uh we're right up we got time for a final comment if someone wants to sneak something in uh before the break here uh, I, I, I'll, I'll very quickly just I'm going to talk about HFCs because it ties back to this entire thing about trying to use uh, trying to use the the future or technology to solve all of our problems because uh, this is my favorite f- favorite story I'll try to tell it in about a minute uh, which is that the way a- HFCs came into existence is that they were they were they were human ingenuity at its best. Because HFCs existed, it came to distance when CFCs were destroying the ozone layer. And we were like, you know what we should do? Change CFCs to HFCs. And then the American company got a patent for it. And so suddenly HFCs were, were, all, were what we use in coolant everywhere. Uh, and now, uh, uh, the fact that now they are a massive, massive, mass contributor to climate change, well, you know, specifically, they, they are really good at trapping heat in the atmosphere more so than they are actually, there's not, not as much of it as carbon, obviously. Um, but the fact 
fact that sort of it was this human ingenuity at its best, like this idea of like it's, we've solved the problem and now we're just now trying to find a third different thing to sort of get to it sort of shows the difficulty of trying to actually solve a problem while still existing within the system that created it. All right, so we'll have to leave it there on that topic as well. Uh, we're going to go and take our second and final music break. Just a reminder as well, if you're uh, listening on something other than our, our uh, podcast, you can you can get uh, you can get the extended version at greenmajority.ca uh, as well. But we are are, are being uh, put out on a variety of community radio partners on rabble.ca uh, as well as live here at CIUT as well. All very appreciated uh, partners uh, to get the show out, um, and wanted to thank them very much for uh, for the opportunity to uh, to get this platform to talk about the show and also. Also to remind people again, yeah, if you if you want, want to reach out to us, contact us. You can send us an email. You can even leave a phone message that we can that we could play on air if you'd like to have your say about any issue at all. Uh, could be about a current topic or not. Uh, as well, make sure you can also send us uh, suggestions for news articles and topics and whatnot. And that's a great way to get in touch uh, as well. So that's it for my announcements for now. We're going to come back from the break in a minute and talk to Matthew Klippenstein, who's a chemical engineer and uh, and uh, he calls himself an enthusiast. I, I would say a borderline expert on the on the topic of plug-in electric vehicles we're going to talk to him about electric vehicles in canada that will be coming up right after this music break in a minute but now let's go to alex again for our second and final music break thanks darren so this is a band called minotaurs and they're an Afrobeat band from guelph they're uh, celebrating the release of a new album called weird waves today and this is a single called blind luck so let's check it out Right. Welcome back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Or you could be listening on one of our very appreciated community radio partners internationally now, as well as Rabble.ca, one of our other very appreciated local partners here. And, uh, or you could be listening on the podcast, which is also great, which you can find at GreenMajority.ca. We're going to spend a little bit of time now on actually one of my favorite topics, and, uh, and as Stefan knows, is actually one of my favorite topics ever, and we've, we actually haven't talked about it in a really long time. Yeah, it's true. So I'm very happy to, uh, to introduce uh, Matthew Klippenstein, who's a chemical engineer and plug-in uh, electric vehicle enthusiast. Uh, in his role with a leading renewable energy consultancy, he evaluates the wind energy potential of prospective wind farms. And as a veteran of the fuel cell industry, he co-authored Ballard Power Systems' white paper on the future of electri- uh, electricity for a McKinsey Company essay series to which Stephen Chu and Andy Grove also contributed. The unofficial Canadian correspondent for GreenCarReport.com since 2013, Matthew also co-hosts the Clean Tech Talk podcast a produced playwright he's also contributed to two canadian comic book anthologies that is a hell of a read-in matthew so thank you so much for joining us oh you're very welcome i uh, i wasn't sure what to put so i tried to cram absolutely everything in <laughs> <laughs> i uh, i hope you didn't miss anything because then i would be even more in awe um oh this... uh, well well uh, um i once recorded a karaoke cd for my wife who uh, subsequently asked me never to buy her surprise presents again. <laughs> <laughs> Nail in the coffin. I love it. Uh, so, Matthew, you're here to talk to us today about, uh, we might we may end up actually getting into a range of topics here, but we're going to we're gonna start being on point, and then, you know, as is sort of the, the, the way of this show, we may ramble on off to something else at the end here. But uh, we are limited for time, so let's jump in right into the intended topic, which is that you're going to give us a, uh, you're going to start by giving us a little bit of a brief overview about where we actually are, just in sort of like two minutes maybe, uh, but where we are sort of with the EV plug-in vehicle uh, in Canada, and then we're going to talk a little bit about why. So some of the things that have encouraged electronic vehicle uh, EV vehicle uh, adoption in Canada, and maybe some of the things that are holding it back. What, where where we could improve, and, and some of the reasons why we aren't even farther ahead than we than we could be right now. So uh, it, without further ado, if you would uh, 
kindly start by giving us a little bit of an understanding about where exactly we are with EV vehicles in Canada. Sure. Right now we have probably a little bit less than 20,000 plug-in electric vehicles in Canada. That would be pure battery electric vehicles, whether it's the Nissan Leaf or like the, the Tesla Model S or Model X, as well as um, plug-in hybrids. These are things like the Chevy Volt uh, or uh, perhaps the Ford C-Max Energy, where you have in parallel a kind of a, a supersized battery as well as a full internal combustion system. Um, as of now, from the stats I've gathered, probably on the order of 18,000 uh, uh, vehicles sold in Canada so far, and that is that is still admittedly a drop in the bucket. It's like uh, one in a thousand. The Canada's uh, uh, vehicular fleet is probably on the order of 20 million. And of course, there are maybe uh, the average car lasts maybe 20 years on the road, something of that sort. And so. Uh, what we have right now is new sales are somewhere on the order of, say, 03 uh, 0.4% of new car sales in Canada, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Uh, perhaps the, the biggest reason is that we might have a couple dozen uh, uh, models of electric vehicle in Canada, but they're mainly centered in the sedan, and uh, we don't have very many crossovers, uh, and the crossovers are, are, at least in North America, seem to be the most popular vehicle segment, not really any SUVs. Uh, no minivans. We have a couple little commuter car uh, options like the uh, the smart electric drive. But basically, uh, the electric vehicles have for now been more expensive up front, and um, we haven't had as much uh, consumer selection. There are al- also other issues we can get into, like uh, ability for people to charge at home. But uh, basically, on these kinds of technology adoption things, we're in the lower part of the S of the S curve where we're still kind of in the early adopters, and uh, with, the, with the car industry being as big as it is, it will probably take a, a, a couple of decades, really, to, to really start seeing a massive uh, a momentum shift. So, Matthew, one of the first things I've been very interested to, to know, and I realize that part of this I'm going to be asking you for is opinion, and, and part of it relies on actual data, but to the, to the best of your knowledge, what is your opinion on, um, you know, just to, if we had to sort of categorize the reasons why people... Um, are 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 not uh, adopting. Do you do you think this is uh, largely attributed to? Uh, is it just you know people like the idea, but they're they're just a little bit too expensive, and when maybe cost comes down, is do you think maybe we haven't communicated well that you know long term this will actually likely save you money? Where, where do you think people are getting stuck on this issue? Sure, um, I think the most authoritative work actually around the world has been done by a team at Simon Fraser University here in BC. And what they did is they surveyed drivers from about 2013 new car buyers. Um, and about a third of them had said that they were open to the idea of buying a plug-in electric vehicle. So that's, that's good. Uh, I'm sure the number is higher now with more public uh, awareness and so on and so forth. Uh, then subsequently, that number of 30-ish percent dropped a bit below 20% because uh, not everyone had the ability to charge at home. A lot of us, ourselves included, live in apartments or condos or townhouses where everyone shares a garage, and sometimes you have to, you're not sure if you can convince a landlord or the strata to uh, allow you to plug in or, or install infrastructure. And subsequent to that, the cost is for now a little bit higher up front than with your typical combustion vehicle. That's not a knock against uh, battery electric vehicles because, frankly, the combustion engine has been around for 100 years. It's produced by the billions each year, and so you'd expect that it's about as cheap as it's ever going to get. Uh, whereas batteries still have a have a, a lot of opportunity to, to come down in cost, 
And then, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, not every type of vehicle is available. And then you go from basically 30% to less than 1% uh, market share because uh, you have these constraints. And then people are willing, perhaps, to consider the idea, but then uh, there has to be work done from advocates like uh, myself and uh, from the Green Majority audience and so on and so forth. Uh, to make sure that uh, when people decide to spend a chunk of money on a on a new car, that uh, those people who are in that fortunate of a position have all the information they they need to be able to say, hey, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna evolve my consumer dollar uh, choice. So, Matthew, one of the most interesting uh, notes, you sent me a whole bunch of notes, and, and we're not going to get anywhere near all of it. You just very t- a ton of information you sent, but I am going to post it all in the show post. So if people are really interested in this topic, there will be a, a just an absolute week's worth of homework worth of stuff on the uh, on the website here on the show post you can find afterwards. But one of the things that interested me the most we were talking about was a pair of pieces you wrote analyzing uh, what happened to EV sales in British Columbia when incentives were removed and then returned. If you can uh, maybe outline that for us. Sure. So uh, what happened in B.C., and I think it's pretty much the only place in the world where uh, we had an incentive, we had a $5,000 rebate, up to $5,000, for the purchase of uh, plug-in electric vehicles. Um, The funding for that ran out in about 2014, and then a year later, uh, funding was restored. So we had this perfect ADA situation where we had incentives. Then suddenly the price of every electric vehicle went up to the consumer by $5,000 because there was no rebate. And then again, it uh, dropped back down $5,000. Uh, and then what, what, we, what we saw uh, when we were comparing sales in B.C. versus Ontario and Quebec was that uh, the, the proportion of sales, the relative uh, percentage of sales in B.C. relative to the, the two other provinces uh, dropped by about half for the leaf and the volt. These are the, the two sort of workhorse, the biggest uh, selling, um, you could say, middle class or uh, you know, typical uh, vehicles for the 99%, whereas sales for the uh, the Tesla were unaffected. And uh, that may indicate that, you know, well, first, to Tesla's credit, they've made an amazing vehicle that, you know, people uh, with the money definitely want to buy. Uh, but it also means that... Uh, the presence of incentives for luxury vehicles like the Tesla or perhaps the BMW i3 aren't aren't really uh, effectively used because people buy them anyway. And um, uh, I'm sure it's just a coincidence. I can't claim any credit, but uh, in the in the past month or two, uh, when Ontario and uh, BC have revised their incentive programs, they kind of put a cap or reduced the amount of incentives you can receive for luxury vehicles. So. Um, it was basically the, the, the case that luxury electric vehicles do perfectly fine on their own, and the battery costs clearly aren't quite cheap enough that uh, that uh, the, it's basically having the, the small incentive or modest incentive does help to increase the market share, gives us the growth, gives us the volume of battery production, which drives down costs, which facilitates our transition to electrified transportation. So uh, we're, one of the other things you, uh, one of the other links you sent, of course, was uh, n- noting uh, some recently bolstered EV credits for Ontario. And what I was hoping you do is uh, do a little bit of compare and contrast there, uh, but also to sort of roll that into um, some recommendations. Obviously, you've done a lot of analysis of the, about this, and, and many of the reports you've written are, are sort of reporting, you know, what is happening. Um, and it was, I was just hoping that you'd be able to maybe make some recommendations. What do you think we could do, uh, either at a federal or a provincial level, to to really help this along? How could we encourage this uh, this adoption faster? 
Okay, so the biggest uh, the biggest lever that could be pulled would be a zero emission vehicle mandate or a ZEV mandate. Uh, That's what they have in California. If you're a car maker and you want to sell in California, a certain percentage of your vehicles have to be zero emission, which basically means electric. You know, maybe one day will mean fuel cells, uh, but um, you have to have uh, you have to make those vehicles, or you have to buy credits from other companies who sell an excess uh, proportion of their sales. Uh, California, that is the the gold standard of uh, effecting change in the personal automobile sector. You know, admittedly, uh, I use public transit every day. I'd love to have more public transit funding. But for private vehicle sales, that is the gold standard. It would be incredibly difficult for Ontario to implement that, though, because there are something like uh, eight automotive assembly plants. And uh, any government which uh, goes up against the auto industry, that's... Uh, uh, confrontationally, it would would likely be defeated in a subsequent election. Now, the very promising thing is that Quebec has uh, promised to mandate a uh, to have a ZEV mandate by the time the current government uh, finishes its term, and Quebec is in is in an excellent position to do so because it doesn't really have any final automotive assembly plants. Uh, it is you know modestly sized market, maybe I think eight eight odd million people, people population wise. Uh, and you'd be able to affect that change. They also have a, a lot of uh, adoption of electric vehicles. There may be a third of the Canadian population, uh, but they're about uh, about half of the uh, electric vehicle sales in Canada. Barring a ZEV mandate, having these incentives for the middle class buyer uh, to tide us over to that uh, that era coming soon, where there's no real uh, uh, price premium, no substantial price premium between a, a battery electric vehicle and a regular combustion vehicle, that's probably the next uh, next best bet. Right. And so we're unfortunately, we're, we're running tight on time. We just have uh, time for, for one more thing. And, and what I'd actually like, it's sort of a question, but it's, it's I, I'm going to make a brief comment and I'd like you to either agree or disagree with it. It's, it's something, it's, it's something that to the best of my ability, I think is true. And I'd like you to, as the actual expert to tell me if I'm, if I'm on base here or not, sure. which is that one of the things I hear all the time, one of the biggest criticisms that I hear all the time uh, from people that are not enthused, let's say that includes not enthusiastic all the way down to against, uh, electric vehicles is one of the most common things I hear is, well, they're only as clean as the energy you put into them. But as far as I'm concerned, that's the best argument for them. That means that as soon as we get everything electrified, we can, as, as we're cleaning our electricity grid, which we're going to have to be doing anyway, that means that they can only go better as opposed to, you know, gas vehicles, which are, you know, there's so much more room for improvement. And uh, do you think that's a valid sort of response? Do you, am I, am I totally off base? What do you think of that argument? Uh, I think your response is quite correct. I think the argument, uh, that argument against is a bit like uh, maybe looking at the first computers where they're like thousands of dollars and or you couldn't search the Internet before Google very effectively. You know, my, my uncle would say, you know, it's the only library where I have to go through a trash can to get to the book I want. Uh, so the electric grid in Canada in particular is very, is, is very clean. Uh, Ontario's uh, grid intensity is something on the order of 100 grams per kilowatt hour. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, the... Uh, you, you definitely have emissions reductions within a few years of driving the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. So after you, you do spend a bit more energy and emissions making the battery, but you recover that and you start net saving uh, on emissions uh, after a few years of driving. So um, the people who are raising this objection, um, they're kind of, uh, they're fighting a past war. You know, it's, uh, it, it sounds, sounds like it's convincing, but when you look at the reality, the, um, the trend, it's um, 
it's the wrong it's the wrong argument. It's like saying, oh, the iPhone's not going to succeed because it doesn't have a thumbboard keyboard. It it's um, it's invalid. It might sound convincing, but it's it's just not a fact. It always struck me as 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 an argument that a corollary might be, uh, you know, you're well, don't eat meals because meals are only as as good as the ingredients you put in them. Like, great, yeah, so let's use good <laughs> ingredients. Like, I don't, I don't understand. That seems to me like just a goofy argument. I don't know. So I don't understand why anyone's really convinced by that. But anyway, un- unfortunately, we are running right up against the end of the program, Matthew. I could easily talk to you for another two hours. Uh, maybe we'll have you back on again uh, in the near future. Exactly. We can spend a bit more time on it. But for now, I'm going to post many of the links that you sent me uh, on today's show post. So if people are interested in this topic. Uh, check out today's show post and please do go check out greencarreports.com and look for Matthew Klippenstein as well. Uh, very knowledgeable and, and we're very uh, grateful for having you on the program today. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, grateful for um, the opportunity to, to chat. Awesome. Thank you so much. So again, that was Matthew Klippenstein uh, from, uh, among other things, greencarreports.com. Uh, so that is all the time we have for today's show, uh, unless you're listening on the Green Majority podcast version, in which we'll be right back at the bonus show to talk about, uh, is it ethical for people on welfare to spend money on ethical products? So other than that, thank you folks for listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT and all of our wonderful partners. Have a good green week, and we'll talk to you real soon. And that's it for the regular part of the program. We're about to get into the bonus show here. Just want to let people know as well, again, I mean, one of the things about this show as well is that, you know, all the people uh, that are involved are all, you know, they all have to have real jobs. And we somehow managed to cobble together a coherent and frequently imperfect, but doing the best we can show every week in our free time. So if you enjoy this content and, you know, what I mean by, you know, helping support the show and help us grow isn't just a matter of, you know, maybe giving us some money for the work that we do. We're happy to do it. And we've been doing it as volunteers for nine going on 10 years now. The point really is, is that imagine what we could do if this was actually our full job, if we actually had the ability to go out and promote this properly, get even better interviews, spend even more time uh, researching this and doing really hardcore work, getting the word out there and, and sharing this with the world with a, an actual advertising budget. I think we could affect a much bigger part of change. So if you support this, please consider becoming a member. You can do so for as a dollar a month and you can do that at www.patron.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n slash uh, dot com slash green majority or just go to greenmajority.ca and click on the button that says how you can help thank you for listening and now our bonus show And welcome to the bonus show. This is Devin Hostetter. Uh, I am going to throw quickly uh, to Sabina because she's going to lead this discussion. So, Sabina, uh, what's our what's our topic for the day? Hi, thank you, Stefan. So today I'd like to talk about a study that was recently published but, um, at the University of uh, British Columbia. So the the scientists. Um, have published a paper on the Journal of Consumer Behavior, and they observed that people on welfare tend to be seen as undeserving of more expensive options and uh, wasting taxpayers' hard-earned cash when they make ethical choices. So they asked around 1,500 Americans and surveyed them on morality of individuals based on the, the grocery list and the type of car that they drive. And of course, as with everything else, there's a large double, double standard of where people are judged differently but of making the same exact choices depending on where their money comes from. And the study also focused on the difference between what is seen as valuable and welfare recipients 
uh, versus wealthy people. And so making pro-social choices is seen as very moral for high-income earning individuals. And people that rely on government assistance are praised only when they're frugal. And another thing that this article showed and the study showed was that people are actually less willing to donate to charity that offers organic products. than a charity that doesn't. So that to me was really, really interesting in perception of individuals and what they believe that organic um, and clean things are a privilege rather than a right. So I just wanted to lay the groundwork for this article and I wanted to ask you guys what you think about it. All right. So Sabina, I actually wanted to jump in first um, because I'm assuming that everybody is going to, I'm assuming I know what everyone's positioned on this <laughs> beat. So I'm going to play devil's advocate and I'm going to make the best case I can uh, to affirm that point of view because then the four of you and me after you are going to jump all over why that's bullshit. Uh, so th- I, I, the argument, I think the best argument that could be made in favor of this would be that, um, you know, the role of people on social assistance um, who to be able to vote with their uh, vote with their dollars is so infinitesimal on much of a rounding error that they have no impact on the market. So their ethical choices will have no impact on the market at large. Uh, Furthermore, if they are in a position where they need... Uh, to be sustaining. So if people need support and they have a family or whatnot, that the focus should, there should be making sure that they have uh, enough to eat and that the, the ability to make these choices is, um, is, is one that sh- is outside of that. So if you're making an ethical choice and that reduces your ability to support your family, even if you know, maybe the more expensive choices are healthier, that maybe you're sacrificing in, in that term of having enough resources or having good resources um, that you may actually uh, be um, doing your family a disservice because maybe organic carrots are better for you, but eating one carrot versus eating five, uh, maybe you're not getting that minimum nutrient, even if on a carrot by carrot basis, uh, the nutrients are better from an organic and there's less danger because there's less pesticide. So that's a really pathetic argument. I think that's the best one that could possibly be made for it. You guys now eviscerate that point. Um, okay. So I, what I find interesting about this, and I'm gonna, I, this is sort of what I end up doing. So I apologize. I'm not gonna directly try to attack Baron's point, uh, but I think what's interesting about that question, about the way that looking at it, is it 100% ties back into this sort of failure of humanity to really understand the full cost accounting of the, of these items, right? You know, like if you're going to be out and you're buying ethical products, yes, you're so yes, maybe right now you're spending more money on these ethical products, but from a systems view, you know, maybe you're also in decreasing the amount of money, amount of money that government money going into corn subsidies. Maybe you're decreasing the amount of money that the government is spending on cleanups, or maybe you're decreasing the amount of money that you will then, you as a person will then have to, will require in healthcare coverage. Like there's, there's, there's so many other parts that you have to factor into this that people just ignore. We've got so obsessed with money and so obsessed with this idea that that money is what that money is the end all be all that we're, we we ignore all the other ways that we, that people can cost money to society, right? Like the idea that a Big Mac or a or, or like or a super cheap cheap children's cereal, um, which is eighty nine percent corn, is the ethical option because it's the cheapest option, ignores the fact that corn destroys the environment. Uh, where there's a massive subsidy on corn from the U.S. United States government, which is the only reason why it's in literally everything, um, and that beef is and, and beef will co- is is the reason why you know Florida is going to be based non-existent in 100 years since we do something and so it's this complete failure uh, as 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 individuals to see the larger under to, to, to even think ahead five years or even to see larger than the person looking at right directly um and that's the like 
that, that's that, that like so it doesn't that reaction doesn't surprise me, but I think it comes from this larger problem with humanity. Not yeah. to mention the healthcare costs that might be incurred from people eating unhealthier products and so on, et cetera. But I think ultimately, like I don't even need to I'm glad Stefan and Darren you said mm-hmm. a lot because frankly it's just paternalistic and right. classist. Yeah. <laughs> like that's well, and that, that's and what, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what's really what's ridiculous about the study as well is I guarantee you that the same people who see eating, be, buying these sort of you know these uh, these these, pro- these ethical product projects uh, products um, as as bad also would be the same people who then judge the you know people who are people who are 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 are, are you know are poor on welfare from buying from being say unhealthy in other ways. You know, like oh how you know, oh you're, you you managed to eat like we've made a society where where food is so cheap uh, and bad food is so cheap that you know that we're going to simultaneously judge them for eating terribly and then and there and then for having uh, creating the obesity epidemic we see in the side states and then judging them for being rich like if you are poor you can't do anything right and that is how our society has built the system um and 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 we are and so like it's 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 just that's what we do it, we you know the the rich people see the people poor people doing anything are like well that's wrong i would totally react differently and it's like no you wouldn't uh, like you just, you just, you're like it's it's and there's just not a way you can make this. Uh, like it's sad that it's not surprising, but it really isn't surprising because it's how we treat. Like I even the fact that we even ask the question or or the idea that we as the quote unquote taxpayer get to decide what how other people get to live is ridiculous. Like that alone is ridiculous. Let alone any other part of this conversation. Um, like. We like, like Ontario's talking about basic income. If we do a basic income, are we going to judge them on how they spend that? Do I get to judge the rich guy and how he spends his tax breaks? No, and that's the same my money. Um, and it, and and so like it's it's yeah, it's 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 uh, paternalistic is, is is probably the best way of putting it. It's just it's a complete. I don't know. We just don't like we like the idea that taxpayers can decide what anyone else gets to do with their life is ridiculous, and I sort of reject that offhand. I think, yeah, I mean, one of the other things that really sort of bothers me about this is, you know, it's that basically what people are saying is because they, they see healthy products and organic products and ethical products as a luxury item, right? This is a luxury. You should have the luxury to choose, you know, what the impacts of the money that you spend are. And and I want to come back actually to, to something Stefan just said, which was, you know, point to point out the thing about corn subsidies, right? That's the reason why uh, what's, uh, corn syrup is in basically everything and why there's the big debacle of, under Bush of, of these massive corn subsidies for like corn ethanol and all this stuff, which is like the worst possible way to go about it. It was an absolute failure, which I actually will not attribute. I will attribute to stupidity rather than evil on the part of George Bush. Uh, I think he was actually trying to do good there. I'm actually going to give him credit for making a really poor and failed attempt to do good there. Um, but really what it comes down to is to point out like, look, okay, people are like, well, the oil industry dominates everything. Why does it need subsidies? Because it needs it to exist. The, the fact is that these big industries that get propped up and have things that are cheap are things that we subsidize a lot of the time. That's not the only reason, but it's a gigantic reason. So you could easily square that circle really fast. Stop subsidizing bad stuff and start subsidizing good stuff. It's not really that complicated, except for the fact that we leave out that this is just pure crony capitalism. These are industries that are that are buying politicians in the in the U.S. legal bribery, which is they're allowed to give with Citizens United. They're allowed to give unlimited contributions to campaigns from corporations because money equals speech, as verified by the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, and this is why, you know, Bernie Sanders is doing so, you know, doing so well is that if we actually if we were actually developing public policy for the welfare of our citizens, we would be disincentivizing bad social bads 
and incentivizing social goods. But that's not what we do. And so you've made it so that the bad option is the cheap one. And then telling people you don't have the right to try and protect your own health. When I don't think it's a matter of like, you know, poor people should have access to this. It's that nobody should have access to things that are demonstrably net harmful at all. They should be they should be taxed into existence. You should have to pay a premium to shit all over everybody else's rights and to pollute the planet. That should be the expensive thing, not the healthy thing. It's completely ass backwards and it's just straight up and down corruption. There, there is really no, it's really that simple. Um, I don't know. I feel like I might've dropped a hammer on the entire topic with that point. Uh, we've got a, we've got a few minutes left and, uh, Sabina, you had another thing really briefly. I don't know if you wanted to introduce the UN water thing. Maybe, maybe talk about that for a minute. Um, I don't think I'm going to talk about the UN water thing, but I'd like to talk about the fact that climate change and all of this environmental talk or all of this stuff that we learn about in an in everyday basis, like all of us, is wreaking, ha- is wreaking havoc on our mental health. I think that I feel like when you're very used to just hearing all this like very depressing things all the time and just listening to just all this, yeah, exactly. All this depressing things, it, it's really t- taking a toll. Like, I think that, like, this in- includes, like, anxiety s- disorders, post-traumatic stress disorders, substance abuse, suicide, like, outbreaks of violence. And I think that, I think we should start to change the conversation from, you know, like, the world is going to end tomorrow to the the conversation of, can we, like, what can we do to help it? And then maybe one of these things, like what you said about, you know, internalizing, like, the externalities of all of these, like, big uh, oil companies or, like, bad health food companies. Like, I don't know what you guys think about, you know, this uh, mental health and the environment. Like, do you guys think that there's a link on that? Or? Um, well, I think, it's, I think there's a link. Uh, there's a strong link between uh, between mental health and activism in general. You know, depending on what you're, depending on what you're fighting, it's that, there's a link. There's a link that surrounds fighting. Uh, you know, if you're constantly banging your head against the wall, eventually your head's going to hurt. Uh, that's just what happens, um, and, it, 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 and so I don't necessarily think it's necessarily specifically an environmental basis, but um, there's definitely that sort of battle, right? And, and how do you how do you manage like how do you take care of yourself in a in a world where where you, where you never win? You know, like you get small victories, but how do you sort of you know how do you yeah, it's like self care has been at least been slowly slowly building into the sort of the conversation that we exists within activism in in sort of social justice circles, which is great um, and and obviously very important. But it's 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 still hard to manage, and you still have to you know and and, and to some extent we're a little better off because we're thinking about these things you know more than like the investment banking community, uh, which mm-hmm. still is working fifteen hours a day with none of these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but at the same time, this, this burnout is still is still massive, right? And you still have to do something. I think it is also specific to um, climate change because it's really the loss of our world. So I've read some pieces about, you know, scientists who have known this is happening for decades uh, and just watched it all fall apart. Uh, So I think we actually could dedicate an entire episode to this because there is actually like science behind it. There's science behind why people deny um, and, you know, I think all of us sitting in this room have probably experienced some mental health consequences of advocating for climate action. Well, and I, and I think, yeah, to jump on that as yeah. well, I think there's, I think there's a level of denial that happens in all of us. You know, there's a level of which like I co- like if you really accept the sheer enormity of, of the problem and you were like, when you really dive into some of the stuff that's happening, it's unbelievably like, it's so depressing. It becomes paralyzing. 
I think uh, it's it could be denial, but also what I find personally is sometimes it results in like a bit of a self-imposed apathy. Mm. Um, I'm not going to read that article. I can't go there right now. Yeah, no, in exactly. My mental space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, like, yeah, or just like you know what? It, 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 yeah, it becomes this thing where it's like, all right, I'm going to go. Uh, I'm just going to put this in the back of my brain. I know this is a fact about the world, but I'm going to keep act. I'm going to keep playing the game of the world, right? Like to some extent, all of civilization is us agreeing to play these by these rules and these games. And so, just like to add the fact that you know mon- that demonstrable climate change is occurring in the background is just another part of the game we're playing. Um, it's you know adds like a timer to the game uh, beyond. But it, but it, it, yeah, but as soon when you face it, it, it it's like it's, 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 it's like it's not called an existential crisis for no reason. It's an existential crisis because when you actually face it it's terrifying and what's actually really interesting is that it's not only like an existential crisis on the fact that you know i'm thinking about oh the world is going to end is it's actually the environment is changing and that scientifically affects our bodies and our mental state mm. and like what's really interesting is that i previously i've done a huge report on like the bp oil spill and the mental health of the residents there and as soon as all of these people like got a look at what was going on in the environment like people would just break down and cry without even realize of course they knew why they were crying but they it was just like a deterioration of mental health just because we are actually connected to our environment whether we think that we're not part of nature or not so it's also this existential crisis but it's also a true crisis of we're connected to the environment so if it's dying we're dying all right so i think we're running uh we're running good on time and i'm glad everybody got shim in alex i'm going to put you on the spot here but i have a very specific question for you so don't don't panic alex uh okay. our tech today first of all thank you once again for awesome music today yeah no uh, worries. always and every week in case i haven't mentioned enough alex picks all of the music and it's always great so thank you so much Thanks, uh, but you're also here as uh you know you're uh, talented at many things and and we're so grateful to have you here as our as our tech but you don't come to us as an environment expert um you know and, and you know at least not somebody who who spends nearly as much time as some of the rest of us on this i come as a student yeah. So uh, yeah. one of the things, you know, listening to this discussion, I have a very brief closing statement, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity to say, you know, listening to this sort of discussion about the mental health and about the the weightiness of, of being an activist as somebody who's sort of, you know, I- interested, but not, you know, this is not the central point in your life. Like, how does that make you feel to listen to these types of discussions? Well, I feel like um, I feel like changes in, in our mental health due to uh, thinking about climate change. Uh, create an opportunity for like a lot of creativity. And I think that um, an outlet for a lot of people over the next decade, say, will be uh, expressing their uh, their opinions and their like fears and also their like hope and, and optimism uh, with everything related to, to climate change. And I know that I, I try to let that influence my own work as much as possible when I'm writing songs or uh, conceiving art projects is uh, how how can this also play an impact in like raising awareness or uh, or like um, showing showing my feelings on the matter or Im- uh, embodying like sort of more of a public uh, a public um, feeling as well. So I think that I think that the opportunity for creativity. Uh, around climate change is going to be one of the things that helps us get through the mental hurdles of of dealing with the crisis. Yeah. 
And thank you, for, thank you for for that, and and for coming in every every week as well. And I guess the the very quick thing I'll say, and I, I don't, we're you know we're we're running late as we usually are because I get so interested in these discussions. But also, I'll make a very brief closing comment as well, which is about my own thing, which is uh, uh, Stefan and I have both been repeatedly asked uh, in in the past, you know, you guys, you know, all you do is swim in all this bad news every week, and yet you seem always so sort of chipper chipper and up upbeat. And I don't know if Stefan uh, will maybe want want to make a quick comment or or will leave me to speak for both of us for now. But just part of the idea is that like. For, at least for me anyway, and I feel like Stefan's probably very similar, which is that it's sort of a you laugh or you cry situation, which is that like, you know, I'm aware of this and I can't help but be aware of this stuff. And I can't help the reason we come in and do the show every week is because I'm like very, very empathetic person. You know, when I see somebody else in pain, I feel that pain. Uh, and so we come in and we do this a because at least then I'm well, at least I'm not sitting on my butt and doing nothing. Uh, and part of it is that, like, if I, we come in and make jokes, because then otherwise, if we didn't make jokes and we talked about this nude, I would just probably cry through most of the show. And that's just the reality. And that's, you know, that's, it's, really, it's really messed up part of, but a real part of this world where the people with the least empathy are the people who are most likely to, and this is science, we, can, we won't get into it, but it's verifiable, that people with the least amount of empathy tend to be the most likely to get into positions of extreme power like CEOs. And the people with the most empathy tend to be, you know, semi-unemployed activists um, because they care more about others than they do about themselves. And I think that's very telling. So maybe we'll, uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for listening to it. I hope it didn't get too dark there at the end. But I, I think we, uh, part of the really great thing about this show and specifically on the bonus show is that we can just have a real talk moment. So thank you everybody for this week and uh, stay tuned. I promise the jokes will keep coming because nobody wants to listen to me cry for an hour. Take care. (laughs)